Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Everyone, welcome. It's good to have you with us. If we haven't met before, my name is Raul, and welcome to Bread. Um, As Heidi mentioned, the Flints are out of town, they're on vacation, and they'll be back soon, but in the meantime, you'll have to hear an American accent. I know, I'm sorry. You're all disappointed. Um, But the last two weeks, we've been journeying through a through the first uh, letter of John in a series that we've titled, This is the Message. And this morning, we're going to continue that series. But before we read the passage, I'd like to remind us again of what was happening within the churches of this letter. The, uh, one of the apostles named John was responsible for overseeing several house churches around Ephesus. And he wrote to them to do some damage control because, you know, we're not perfect, neither was the first century church. Um, And so the letter mentions that people, um, that the church had faced a crisis, that people uh, had broken away from the churches, they had fell out of believing of Jesus, and they were stirring up hostility with those who remained faithful to Jesus within the church. And among many things, this group rejected faith in Jesus and the love that results from a trusting relationship in him. Instead, they took up Gnosticism, which was a belief that hyper-emphasized knowledge and intellect while denying the physical self and labeling it as evil, which implied that they also denied that Jesus came in the flesh, that they denied that Jesus came in human form. And so this was happening in these churches around Ephesus, and John responds by telling the churches, stick to the faith and love that you already know. He was an eyewitness of Jesus, and this often Um, This was and often still is one of the most credible sources for anything that happens. And so John is writing and he says, hey, don't buy into what these Gnostics are selling. I saw Jesus with my own eyes. And I think if John were here with us today, he'd say, I lived with Jesus for three years. I saw Jesus walk to Calvary and be crucified. I, I looked into the empty tomb And I even ate and drank with Jesus after he was resurrected. He'd say, this was real. I was there. Jesus is a message that you've heard from the beginning, and it is one of love. And so this is the backdrop for what we're about to read. This is 1 John chapter 3, verses uh, 11 through 18. 
Verse 11, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I have an older sister. Uh, she's three years older than me, and today we get along just fine. But that wasn't always the case. Um, if you had siblings, you may be able to relate to this um, but she was the older sister who always won her way and was given the birthright to tell me whatever she wanted me to do. I was the younger brother who got out of doing chores and got away with anything. We used to fight all the time growing up. We wouldn't physically fight often, but we'd make life hell for one another. And I remember this one particular moment when we were kids, she thought it would be a good idea to have me sit on a high chair and spin me as fast as she could. And I went with it because, you know, I thought what could go wrong. I had no concept of, you know, the centrifugal forces of, you know, our existence. And so she spun me again and again, and I felt the chair, the chair lose balance. And, and when I felt this, my life flashed before my eyes. As a seven-year-old, you know, my body went flying across the room. And looking back, I think this would have made great content for the Instagram account, Kids Getting Hurt. Um, but I wasn't a saint either. You know, over summer break, I would sneak into her room and early in the morning, and I would blast Blink-182 <laughs> at full volume because what else would you play? Um, but we eventually calmed down. And, you know, I'd never forget something our parents used to say to us. Our parents used to say, son tu sangre, which means they're your blood, your brother, your sister. They're your blood. And what they were implying was this. You need to love one another because your blood and similarly, John summarizes the message of the gospel with this imperative, love one another. The message of Jesus, the story of, of God redeeming the world from death and reconciling it to himself, then releasing his spirit to transform us from the inside out. This is the narrative that bonds you and I together. You and I are of the same story, of the same spirit. And so in other words, John is saying, love one another because you share the same narrative. 
And naturally, we may be asking the question posed by the great philosopher Hathaway, what is wrong? What is right? Give me a sign. What is love? Cue the neck twitches. Um, It's a big question, not just of our day, but I think for most of human history. You know, on one end, love has been depicted as this disembodied thing that is separate from our physicality. And on the other end, it's divorced from any part of our inner selves and something we solely seek for physical pleasure. But there are countless TED Talks and blogs, um, TikTok videos, you know, of various opinions on what love is. And what this suggests for us is that we're still trying to get a grip on what is love. For centuries, humans have been scrambling in the dark for the answer, what is love? But love that is self-relating and self-serving has often, been, has often dominated the social landscape. But John offers a stark contrast here for us. He says, this is what love is, and this is what love is not. First notice what he says. He says, love is not like Cain. Love is not like Cain. Cain is an Old Testament character, and in Genesis 4, he murders his brother. It is the first account of violence in the human story, and it is between siblings. Cain maliciously lures his brother out into the field, probably with some, you know, guacamole or uh, kombucha or something. Um, He says, hey, come out, come out. And so his brother Abel goes, and, and then there in the field, Cain strikes down Abel out of anger, jealousy, and fear. And so for John, Cain represents the antithesis of love. Cain is self-serving at the expense of those closest to him. And I can't help but think that the attitude of Cain has had a place within the church. Looking back, for example, after the Mexican-American War, the U.S. annexed 55% of Mexico's territories. And the Catholic bishops of Mexico who were overseeing the churches in the southwest suddenly had their churches seized from them. By the Catholic bishops of the U.S. and part of this conquest involved destroying cultural expressions of the Christian faith, things like artwork and architecture and music. And the Mexican Christians of these communities were conquered in a spiritual conquest. Not only did they have their land taken from them, but it was their cultural expressions of the faith. And they were forced to assimilate into Anglo expressions of faith. And I can't help but think this is an example of the attitude of Cain. It's one that takes from a sibling. One that says, me first. One that says, I'm right. It's one that feels threatened and fearful of anyone or anything different. Ultimately, what it does is it denies life. And the attitude of Cain is also expressed in the hostility between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, between urban and rural Christians in America, between those who ordain LGBTQ clergy for ministry and those who don't. 
It's the attitude of Cain that denies life. It comes to divide and it destroys. And before we can, you know, point any fingers about who has taken up this attitude, whether, you know, down the street or across the country back home, let us look inward and ask, when have I been like Cain? Have you ever said something hateful of someone because of an insecurity that you've had? I definitely have. Have you ever entertained the thought of being mean to someone because of something they did? I have. Have you ever withheld something good from someone either in thought or in deed because of a different opinion they had than you? Well, I definitely have. We all have tendencies to be like Cain because of our human condition. We have a love deficiency. It means that our understanding of love is warped and blurred. There are blurred lines when it comes to love, when it comes to defining what love is. And it's exactly why we need Jesus. It's particularly why the next thing John says is this in verse 16. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Cain illustrates what love is not, while Jesus illustrates what love is. You know, where the attitude of Cain comes to deny life, Jesus came to give life. Where the attitude of Cain comes to say, they are a threat to you, Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid. Where the attitude of Cain comes to divide and destroy, Jesus came to unite and build up. Where Cain came to plunder and take, Jesus came to give of himself. And so for us, Christ informs our definition of love. He is the embodiment of love. And if we are to understand what love is, we need to be shown Jesus. Because he is what love looks like. The first century idea of love has to do with attachment. To love someone is to attach yourself to that person. We were in a series on the book of Ruth a couple weeks ago, and we saw how um, Ruth attached herself to Naomi. And on the other hand, to hate someone or something is to reject or detach from that person or thing. And so what John is saying to us today is, He's trying to get us to see that God has attached himself to us. It means that when we feel alone, when it seems like no one is on our corner, Jesus isn't going anywhere. It means that when we feel ashamed, you know, when we fall again into our unhealthy behaviors, Jesus doesn't distance himself from us. He doesn't say, hey, you've got to work your way back. No, Jesus is right there. And when we're celebrating our successes and wins and the things that we've worked so hard to accomplish, Jesus is rooting for us. And when we feel scared, uncertain about what's ahead, Jesus stands ahead ready to catch us no matter what. This is Jesus selflessly attached to you. It's what true love looks like. 
I enjoy um, hiking in the backcountry any chance I get. I love hiking and backpacking and those kinds of things. And one question I get asked often is, hey, aren't you, aren't you afraid of bears? Because, you know, backcountry, that's where they live. Um, and I, my honest answer is no, I'm afraid of mosquitoes. And here's why, because on average, there are 40 bear attacks around the world every year, 40. While mosquitoes kill 750,000 people a year around the world. And this is why there's so few bear attacks. It's because bears are excellent risk evaluators. They're excellent risk evaluators. They easily turn away from anything that could potentially wound them. And if we're honest, we're very much like bears in this, in this sense when it comes to love. You know, we can withhold love from anyone or anything that could potentially wound us. We can be slow to take risk in extending our love because, you know, what you and I crave is security. We want a guarantee that the love that we express will be reciprocated back to us. You know, it's a reason why we're so slow to say, I love you, because we crave that security. We are excellent risk evaluators. And God, on the other hand, when it comes to love, is not a great risk evaluator. He doesn't put his love in, you know, the safest of places. You know, he risks it all so that you and I could be who he's made us to be. It's only when we know him to be attached to us that we can truly be ourselves. Because you and I were meant for intimacy with the one who created us. And only then, only when we allow ourselves to experience this attachment, can we really find ourselves being truly alive. St. Augustine summed it up this way. He said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. We can only find contentment until... We receive God's love. Only then can we love as John invites us to. What I've noticed is I think we often fall into the trap of thinking that if we want to be better Christians, we just need to do a better job of loving people. I think this is only half the truth. I I once heard a church leader say that the hardest people to lead to Jesus are those who call themselves Christians, because we think we've got it down. We, we think we've received his love once and for all, and all we simply need to do is do, do, do. Rather, we love better when we receive God's love again and again. We need to come back to Jesus and receive his love ongoingly. Only then can we love as we're supposed to. It's not always about doing, it's about being. It's about being so enveloped in the love of God that it just naturally spills over. And when it spills over, it results in concrete actions of love. Not just talking about it, not just tweeting about it, not just posting it on Instagram, but actual 
concrete acts. But many accuse uh, us Christians of not being loving. If you, you know, you simply need to go on Instagram or go on the news and see, you know, another person or another organization kind of bashing how Christians uh, show a lack of love. And this may be the case in many instances, but the problem isn't that we're not engaging in acts of love. The problem, is that we're, the problem isn't that we're not being loving. The problem is that we're not receiving the love of God, that we're not receiving the love of the Father. Because when we receive this love, we can't help but do acts of love for other people. You know, believing God loves you naturally produces that same love for other people. And it shows itself in meaningful ways. It's, you know, the horse before the cart. When we put the cart of having to do and do and do, having to perform before the horse, we get frustrated. We get burned out. We get resentful. And so let us be people who ongoingly receive the love of God so that it's produced in us for others. This kind of love that God invites us into, it's like a river. You know, it's meant to flow through us to others, but for many reasons, it's often dammed up. We create barriers for it. And I think this is what John is getting at in verse 14 when he says, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who does not love remains in death. C.S. Lewis illustrates this idea perfectly in his book, The Four Loves. He writes this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round it with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So friends, love takes risks. And there's no insurance against heartbreak. I was a youth pastor for three years before arriving at Bread, and I'm really grateful for the church I was at at the time. It's where I came to trust Jesus, where I was baptized, where I met some of my best friends, um, and it was a special place for me, and I'm grateful for that church. But like every church, including ours, you know, no church is perfect. And there were instances where I was wounded by the church, and after I had left, I was unsure if I could commit to church again. Years later, when we were invited here to bread, Ashley and I took a risk. We knew nothing about this church other than what our friends had told us. And, you know, if, if you've visited several churches, you know that visiting is it's kind of scary, take some guts. It could be pretty intimidating because there's risk involved. 
And so we had visited Bread a number of times, and we liked it mainly because our friends were here. Don't tell Ed and Hannah that. Um, but we were cautious to commit ourselves because we had both been wounded by the churches that we were at previously. But we took a risk. We committed to it, and I'm really grateful that we did because God has tended to my wounds here. He's helped me to commit again, and he's helped me to love selflessly again. But I've noticed that when we're wounded, we're reluctant to give our hearts away. We give our hearts to things we truly care about, and that is why they have the ability to hurt us. Because we care deeply. And if we're wounded, it's because at one point we exercise the love. And so the love is there. It's capable of being exercised again. It may be dormant. It may be hidden. But it's there. And so let us not allow our broken hearts to keep us from loving again. Jesus is the one who resuscitates our ability to love. We may have experienced a relationship breakdown, a rejection of sorts, an immense loss, or something entirely different but yet painful. And you may be thinking, well, I don't even have the capacity to love at the moment. This thing has been so painful. And I'll be honest, I could never know the depth of your wound. But I know the one who can bind him up. And his name is Jesus. Jesus took the ultimate risk in loving us, in attaching himself to you and I. He knows what it's like to be wounded. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. And yet he comes to us and he says, I will never leave you. He says, I am the good physician. I'll bind up your broken hearts. So is your heart broken today? Do you find it difficult to love at the moment? What have you lost? God wants to bind our hearts, but first we have to take the risk of trusting him, of attaching ourselves to him, of opening ourselves to him, because only then can he heal our souls and give us the ability to love as he did. If I can have the band come up. Um, we're going to sing a song and then we'll pray up here as we always do.